The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him for, from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom We have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord God, there is so much wonderful news in this text. There is no way we can comprehend it all. And so God, we pray through the supernatural work of your Holy Spirit that you will give us minds that can conceive the depths of your love for us, ears to hear the great wonders and great news of the gospel, that you'll give us hearts that overflow with rejoicing. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As many of you know, Jacobswell Church was planted about eight years ago. And about six years ago, we planted a daughter church named Emmaus Road down in Appleton, Wisconsin. And they have just recently planted a granddaughter church in Oshkosh called Livingstone, which we are uh, very thankful for. But a couple years ago, um, Emmaus Road Church particularized. Now, what that means is that at that time, Emmaus Road Church was ready to ordain and install their own elders. They had become self-governing. They were financially independent, things of that sort. And so we had this particularization service, and they asked me to come down and give a charge. And a charge is kind of like that, that, that go get them speech the coach gives before you take the field, okay? And so let me ask you, um, if you were in my place, and they would say, hey, we want you to give a charge to this new church, what kind of charge would you give to them? What would you say? Would you say, cling to the word of God? Would you say, Forgive one another, love one another, care for one another. Would you say, invest in your community? Tell others about Jesus. 
All of those are really good things to charge a congregation with. But what God convinced me of as I was thinking through and praying through, Lord, what do you want me to charge this congregation with? Was a single word. Rejoice. There is a continual battle for the rejoicing of our heart. That continual battle is happening right now at this time in this service as we hear these words. God is supremely interested in your rejoicing. God is supremely interested in your joy. If you look throughout scripture, time and again, God commands his people, calls his people to come and to rejoice. I'm just taking a couple of verses. There are many, but in Deuteronomy 12, it says, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God and your sons and your daughters. First Corinthians 16, first, I'm sorry, first Chronicles 16 says, glory in his holy name with the hearts of those who seek the Lord, rejoice, Nehemiah 12. And they offer great sacrifices that day and rejoice for God made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Isaiah 61, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Moving to the New Testament, Jesus says to his disciples, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Romans 12, rejoice in hope. 2 Corinthians 13, finally, brothers, rejoice. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Finally, Philippians 3, 1, rejoice in the Lord because it is a safeguard for you. Do you see that God is overwhelmingly interested in the joy of your heart? He's overwhelmingly interested in your rejoicing. All of us have a rejoicing problem. I have a rejoicing problem. And my rejoicing problem isn't that I rejoice too much. My rejoicing problem is that I rejoice too little. And I rejoice only in things, many times, that give me a temporary joy. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and romance and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Friends, I am not today going to encourage you to rejoice any less in the blessings that God has given to you. When you rejoice in those things as a gift from God, it is glorifying to God. But my hope for this service is for my heart and for your heart to grow in the joy that God has for us, for a supreme joy that overflows in rejoicing throughout all of our life. And so Paul here says in this passage, there are three things that he rejoices in. In. He says that he rejoices in God, that he rejoices in suffering, and that he rejoices in heaven. And so I want to look at those three things that Paul rejoices in. And my hope and prayer is that our hope would grow, our joy would grow, and our rejoicing would overflow into every area of our life in praise to God. First, 
rejoicing in God. That's what Paul says there in verse 11. He says, we also rejoice in God. Now, what is it that makes Paul rejoice? Well, go back to the beginning of the passage. Verse 1, Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it was peace with God that allows Paul to rejoice in God. Now, this peace with God thing is probably something that we don't give too much weight to. You know, people before they die usually say, I am at peace with God, and we don't think much of it. Oh, that's nice. That's lovely. But this peace with God thing is a major revelation in this letter to the Romans. You see, as you look through the first four chapters of Romans, one of the major themes in it is God's wrath against sin. In Romans 1, 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Romans 2, 8, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they will be, there will be wrath and fury. Romans 3, 5 through 6, I'm paraphrasing, says, God is righteous to inflict wrath on us. And then Romans 4, For the law brings wrath. And so every chapter up to this point, Paul is making the point that all of us deserve the wrath of God justly. And then we get to Romans 5.1. And there is this brilliant, beautiful proclamation that through Jesus Christ, by faith, we are at peace with God. This peace we have with God is not just a feeling. It includes the feeling of a feeling at peace with God. But this is also a contractual, relational peace with God, established not by our own efforts, but as Paul says here, through faith in Jesus Christ. This is a sure foundation for peace. You see, if the peace was dependent on us, if the peace was dependent on our own good works, then we would never have peace at all. I mean, we wouldn't have objective peace, contractual peace because we could never live up to the peace agreement, but we would never have subjective peace either. We would never feel at peace because we'd be always working to try to get peace with God. Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you come and you say, I feel so at peace with God and I'm working so hard to get peace with God, but I just cannot get it. And so Paul shares this beautiful news that we have a more sure foundation for peace than our own efforts. That our foundation for peace is not us, but it is Jesus. And we receive that peace through faith. Pastor Brian Chappell shares about a newspaper clipping that his mother kept. It was the front page of a newspaper. They lived in Knoxville. And it was the front page from VJ Day, from Victory Over Japan Today. And on the newspaper was a picture of people dancing in the street, rejoicing. And there was just one word across the top. The headline said, peace. You see, peace led to rejoicing because peace led to tranquility in the world. Friends, you and I are born in sin. We deserve the wrath of God. But through Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. That peace with God is a motivation a reason for rejoicing. Paul goes on. It gets even better than that. Verse 10, he says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, not just at peace with God, but reconciled to God, 
by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, peace brings a relationship from war into neutrality. But reconciliation brings a relationship from neutrality to intimacy. Peace says God is no longer against you. Reconciliation says God is now for you. Peace says God is no longer your enemy. But reconciliation says God is now your best friend. Peace says God will not harm you. But reconciliation says God is now your helper. Peace says God will not hate you. But reconciliation says God is madly in love with you. Now we all know there are various degrees of love. I think I said this a few weeks ago. I love your children. I love my children. But I don't love your children like I love my children, right? I'm not saving up for your kids' college education. Sorry to disappoint. I love my kids differently. They're my kids. I love them. And so what degree to which does God love you? To what degree does God love me? Well, Paul answers this question in verses 6 through 8. He says, For while we were still weak, some translated feeble, infirmed, without strength, while we were helpless or powerless, at the right time in God's redemptive plan, Christ died for the ungodly. Not for the good, not for the lovely, not for those who had it all together, but God sent Christ to die for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one will dare even to die. But God shows his love, the extent of his love, the beauty of his love, the glory of his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Near the end of college, I lived with my dad for a year or two, and we decided to get a dog. And so we went to the kennel, and we went up and down the aisle looking in the different cages, and, and we were trying to figure out which dog to get. And we saw this one dog that was really cute and mild-mannered and didn't bark a lot. That changed when we got home, but that's a different story. And so we took the dog out and we played with him and he nuzzled into us. And so we adopted this dog and we gave him the name. We called him Deuteronomy uh, and we called him Dute for short. I know we're weird Bible geeks, but anyways. And then we spoiled this dog. I mean, we would hold him. We would maybe kiss him. We would do all this stuff. We love this dog, right? You know, this is how we naturally live out our love stories, isn't it? I mean, you see someone, you're attracted to them, you, you think they're lovely, they're nice to you, you, you care for them, and so you say, okay, will you be mine? And you get married, and you live life happily ever after, to some degree, right? I'm so thankful that is not God's love story. That is not how God loved us. You see, it's as if God walked into the kennel, and he went cage to cage to cage, and he saw all these wonderful dogs, lovely puppies. And then he came to the clerk and said, 
what's behind that door? And he said, oh, that dog, that dog's not for adoption. Well, why not? Well, that dog has an anger issue. That dog has attacked people. That dog is not safe for people. And God said, that's the one I want. You see, God doesn't choose the loveliest puppies. He chooses the one who's headed towards destruction. And he says, I'm going to take that one. I'm going to purchase that one. I am going to name it, and I am going to pour out my love upon it. How do we know how much God loves us? We know how much God loves us by how much we don't deserve God's love. But we also know by the price that he paid. I think for my dad and me, I think we had to pay like $130 to buy a dog. How much did God pay for you? You know the verse, John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his servant, right? That he gave 150 bucks, that he gave, he gave a peasant. No, God so loved the world. God so loves you that while you were still sinners, he gave his one and only son for you. Why would we rejoice in God? Because through Christ, we are now at peace with God. And we are not only at peace with God, but we are reconciled to God. And not only are we reconciled to God, but we are loved by God. My friends, I hope God is taking over the joy in your heart as you hear these glorious truths of the gospel. We can rejoice in God because we are at peace with God and reconciled to God and loved by God. Paul goes on to say something surprising, that we can rejoice in suffering. Verse 3, he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, not for our suffering, but in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. You know, we may look at this passage and say, why would Paul rejoice in suffering? Maybe Paul doesn't really know what suffering is. I mean, Paul has never had to have my job. Uh, Paul has never had my illnesses. Paul has never had to walk a mile in my shoes. Paul doesn't understand the suffering that I go through. But then we look at 2 Corinthians 11 and what Paul tells us about his life, about his suffering. Paul tells us that he has countlessly been beaten, that he's often been near death, that five times he received 40 lashes minus one, which means 39 lashes, which is one lash short of what would cause a man to die. And so if Paul took off his shirt and you were to look at his back, it would be one enormous scar. Paul goes on to say that he had been beaten with rods, that he had been stoned. If you remember in the story of Acts, he was actually left for dead. They thought he was dead. Three times he was shipwrecked. He was adrift at sea. 
Uh, he was in frequent danger from rivers, from robbers, from his own people, the Jews, from Gentiles. He was in danger in the city, in the wilderness, at sea. He was in danger from false brothers. He was in the toil and hardships through many sleepless nights. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was often without food. He was cold and often exposed. I think we could say Paul knows something about suffering, don't you? Paul understands what, what suffering is like. He lived a life marked with tremendous suffering. And yet he says, we rejoice in our suffering. How could it be that we could rejoice in our suffering? Well, one way is simply by what we've already talked about. is because we can rejoice in God in the midst of our suffering. You see, our deepest need of life has been satisfied. God has reconciled us to himself. He has poured out his love upon us. And so we can rejoice in God looking upwards no matter what's going on down below. But Paul goes further than that. We don't only rejoice in our relationship with God, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know our suffering is not wasted by God. We know God will use our suffering for our good. You see, both Christians and non-Christians suffer. Everybody suffers. But Christians have this great promise that your suffering is never in vain. Paul says here that suffering produces endurance. This is a steadfastness or a patience or a perseverance. In the New Testament, it characterizes someone who continues strong in their faith regardless of suffering. And then Paul continues and he says suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. Character is becoming into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It's actually becoming more fully human as God intended us to be. I love the quote from John Wooden who says, the true test of a man's character is what he does when no one is watching. Paul tells us that the way character is produced is through the furnace of suffering. And then he goes on and he says, an endurance produces character and character produces hope. How does suffering produce endurance, produce character, produce hope. Well, have you ever had the question, how do I know if I'm a Christian? Maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I'm not born again. Maybe, maybe I'm not really saved. Have you ever wondered that? What Paul is saying here is that suffering produces hope because it clarifies where we put our hope. You see, suffering is a very polarizing thing. When people suffer, there's two directions they go. It's actually a lot like college. It's funny. But when, when they suffer, they go two different directions. They either run away from God, shaking their fist at God, or they run to God, saying, Lord, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand why this is happening, Lord. But you are my refuge. You are my strength. You are my hope. You are my shield. To whom else shall I go? You see, suffering shows us the genuineness of our faith. Suffering shows us if we are a fair-weather fan who is only interested in the blessings of God or if we are a genuine believer who delights in the presence of God, even in the midst of trials. Suffering is by no means fun. We should not go out and seek suffering, but we can rejoice in our suffering knowing that it is not wasted by God, that he is using it to conform us to the image of his son, to grow us closer to Jesus and to the hope of heaven.
Yesterday I was talking with Scott Jansen, that guy right over there on the phone, and I said, how are you doing? And he said, you want me to be honest? And I said, no, yeah, of course I want you to be honest. He says, I'm discouraged. I said, well, why are you discouraged? He said, I went back to the doctor and my foot's still broken. Uh, if you've seen Scott the past couple of weeks, he's a guy that's always wearing argyle um, and has had a boot on his foot. And he's had this boot on his foot because he broke his foot several weeks ago, months ago. And because of this boot on his foot, he hasn't been able to drive, which means he's been stuck at home many times. His, his wife and children have had to caddy him around. And it was so interesting because even in the midst of his discouragement of knowing that he still has a broken foot, he's allowed to drive now, but, but the, the inhabitants of having a broken foot, he said to me, you know what, as hard as it is to have a broken foot, I wouldn't trade it for the world. And I said, oh, why not? And he said, well, it has helped me so tremendously to grow in patience. It has grown my empathy for those who have physical limitations. It has grown me in compassion for elderly who lose their license. He says it has even helped me correct some of the misplaced intensity in my life. And then Scott even had his boss affirm how this suffering has produced something beautiful in Scott's character. Scott said, it is very hard, but I would not trade it for the world. And then I asked, can I use that as a sermon illustration? And he said, yes. Where are you suffering? What is the suffering going on in your life? Maybe it's relational with family or physical. Maybe it's, maybe it's a sin that keeps nipping you in the heels. Maybe it's workplace. Maybe it's financial. You know, I think we approach suffering by saying, I'm going to endure it. I'm going to get through it. Paul says something different. He says, rejoice in it. Rejoice in your suffering because you know that God is with you. And you know that God promises to use it for good. To grow you into the image of his son. We rejoice in God. We rejoice in our trials. Finally, we rejoice in heaven. Paul points to two aspects. I got to kind of hurry through this because I don't have a whole lot of time. But the first thing Paul does to, to raise the joy in our heart and the truth of the gospel is Paul points us to the certainty of heaven. Verse 3 again. Well, let's skip on to verse 4. He says, endurance produces character and character produces hope. And that hope does not, there's the certainty, that hope does not put us to shame. Paul here is not talking about worldly hope, but Christian hope. And these two definitions of hope could not be more different. You see, worldly hope is wishful thinking. Like, I hope that the Packers win the game, right? I hope that I get a job. I hope that Pastor Dan preaches shorter sermons. All of that is very wishful thinking. That may not happen and probably won't happen. But the hope Scripture talks about is a certain hope. It is not wishful thinking. It's something that is going to happen. And so here Paul is saying that our 
hope will not put us to shame. The hope that God is going to use the trials, the suffering in our life to conform us into the image of Jesus. The hope that we have in the heaven that is to come. You will not be put to shame. You will not die and in the next breath say, whoops, I missed it all. You won't be put to shame because the hope is certain. Because we know that God who has began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. The one who has brought you salvation will bring you glorification. Paul points this out later in verse, uh, let's see, verse 9. He says, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, meaning declared right before God, innocent before our God. Much more shall we be saved, talking future tense, by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Jesus wants you to be certain of your salvation. Jesus wants you to be certain in the security of your salvation. Jesus wants you to know that you cannot lose your salvation. Jesus wants you to know that. He wants you to rejoice in that. He wants you to be confident in that. You are secure in Christ. You know, when you get to heaven, you may be more sure of your salvation, but you will not be more secure in your salvation. Because Christ, who has began a good work in you, will carry on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but that brings joy to my soul. Because that means that God is not going to give up on me, no matter how many times I have given up on him. We can rejoice in the certainty of heaven, but we must also rejoice in the glory of heaven. You see, we may be certain that we're going to heaven, but if we have a wrong view of heaven, it's not really something that we would rejoice in. So if heaven is just a bunch of naked baby angels with bows and arrows and we're riding on clouds, that's not something that really makes me rejoice, right? It makes me say, I'd rather stay here on earth for a while, right? But the glory of heaven is something beyond our comprehension. Verse 2 again, it says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. This standing is a firm foundation in the grace of God. And then he says, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He's pointing forward to heaven. The hope of the glory of God is the hope of the glory of heaven. What makes heaven heaven is not naked angels with arrows, It's not a bunch of money. It's not great food. What makes heaven heaven is the glory of God. Again, I got to go quick because we're running out of time. But as you look throughout scripture, you see just glimmers of the glory of God. You remember when when Moses goes to God and he says, God, can you show me your glory? And and God's like, no, I can't show you my glory. If I show show you my glory, you will die. But I will hide you in the cliff of the rock and I will pass by you. And you can look at the backside of my goodness. And so this happens. And then, and then Moses goes down the mountain and he appears before the people. And he doesn't know this, but his face is shining so bright that it's terrifying the people. And why is his face shining so bright? Because he just gets a hint of the goodness of the glory of God. You get to the New Testament and you see the transfiguration. And it says that Jesus became brilliantly white that his skin of his face shone like the sun and that his clothes were like lightning. Or you get to 
the time where Paul gets a glimpse of the glory of God on the way to Damascus. What happens? Paul falls to the ground and goes blind. Or when you read in Revelations 21, it says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. I've shared this story before, but when my kids were little, uh, we used to put a kiddie pool out on the back deck. And it was a kiddie pool about a foot high and about six feet wide, and we would fill it up with water. And they would sit in it and play in it all day. They loved that kiddie pool. But then we went to Noah's Ark. And at Noah's Ark, there were water coasters. There were the tidal wave pools. You could surf. You could do all of these amazing things. Now, there's nothing wrong with the kiddie pool. The kiddie pool's great. But it doesn't hold a candle to Noah's Ark Water Park, does it? When we get to heaven, you will look back to the most glorious thing in this world, whatever it might be, whether it might be having a child, celebrating an achievement, romance, whatever it might be, you will look back at the most glorious thing in this world and you will say, that was just a kiddie pool. That's how glorious heaven is. All right, I got to cut out a bunch here. I'll pick this one to end with. Um, There's many people who chase joy in many ways. Many people that are famous. Have you ever seen VH1 behind the music? Every story is this person was searching for joy and they ended up hopeless and empty, right? There are many stories like that. I have stories here that I don't have time to share. But then there's the opposite story. The story of someone who's gone through suffering and pain and found a joy that the world cannot touch. One of my favorite letters is a letter from Cyprian. And Cyprian was persecuted for his faith. He was thrown in prison and he was even killed for trusting in Jesus. And yet Cyprian at one point wrote this to his friend Donatus. He says, it's a bad world, an incredibly bad world. But I have discovered in the midst of it a quite quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their soul. They have overcome the world. These people are Christians, and I am one of them. Friends, God is supremely interested in your joy. He's supremely interested in your rejoicing. Remember the truths of his word. That we can rejoice in God because we have peace with God. Because we have been reconciled with God. Because God loves us. That we can rejoice even in the midst of suffering. Because of course God is with us. But not only that, but God will use our sufferings for our good. But then we must also rejoice in the hope of heaven. Knowing that heaven is secure for all who are saved by Jesus Christ, who trust in Christ for their salvation. And it is not only secure, it is glorious. Rejoice. Rejoice. As Paul says, it is a safeguard for your soul. And it is glorifying to God. There is a battle for your rejoicing. Fight to rejoice in God. Let's pray. Lord, we come today saying, help us.
Help us to rejoice in you. Help us to rejoice in our salvation. Help us to rejoice in the midst of suffering. Help us rejoice in that thing which will give us the most rejoicing in our soul for all eternity. Help us to rejoice in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.